listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the annual meeting edition of Locked On Pharmacy, the only place for complete all-access coverage of APHA's 2023 annual meeting, which took place from March 24th through the 27th in Phoenix, Arizona. This special edition of Locked On Pharmacy includes interviews with APHA board members, senior leadership, guest speakers, and attendees. Whether you attended this year's meeting or plan to attend next year, listen now for exclusive information about practice, education, and legislative and regulatory issues, as well as discussion about the pharmacy topics that matter most to you. APHA's 2023 Annual Meeting Edition of Locked On Pharmacy is hosted and produced by the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You can find other episodes and more information on topics and guests via APHA's podcast website at podcasts.pharmacist.com. And now, welcome to a special edition of Locked On Pharmacy. We're here at the APHA 2023. We're in Phoenix. You know, San Antonio was last year. I enjoyed it. Brady and I with Pharmacy Podcast, we are from Pittsburgh, so we were looking forward to some Phoenix weather. We're here with Melissa Duke. Uh, You are from Phoenix, so it's like, this is in your backyard. Like, what's that like having a national association, the APHA, right here in your backyard? It's a little surreal. I'm used to having about a day's worth of travel to get (laughs) to my annual meeting, but I, uh, I drove about 10 minutes on the freeway. I parked my car under the hotel and I, I feel like this is in my backyard. We're going to restaurants and things, you know, that I have been to my whole life. And so it's really fun to show off Phoenix and the Sonoran Desert to all my friends from around the country who don't always have an opportunity to come to Phoenix. So yes. it's a great city. We've got great weather right now. So really appreciate it. It is, it's, um, it's a beautiful city. I feel safe here. Um, and it's just busy enough. I, I don't I don't like the big cities. I'm a medium city kind of person. That's kind of what Pittsburgh is. So yeah. I kind of like the medium city. We have kind of a medium city vibe. Our yeah. downtown is huge. We don't have a lot of big sky right, you know, uh, uh, skyscraper buildings. It's uh, it's a fun town. Yeah. So Melissa, let's talk about the world of pharmacist role expanding and how pharmacists are now looked at to develop policy that literally affects public health, decision-making, epidemiology, disaster care. Like there's so much coming out of what happened to the pandemic and as, as horrible and horrific as the pandemic was to our nation and to our world, there's good that has come of it. And the good that has come of it, one of the things for me as pharmacist number one fan is the fact that now pharmacists are being looked at as specialists in care and part of that means policy so give us an overview of what you specialize in in your career in pharmacy and how pharmacists now have a very special opportunity yeah you bet so i'll actually start with a little bit of a history lesson so in 1996 so 24 years before the pandemic in our house of delegates we passed a policy that called for pharmacists to have the autonomy to immunize And once we uh, coalesced around that shared vision, our pharmacists and our association went to work on a state-by-state, conversation-by-conversation basis to give pharmacists that authority. And I think 2009, uh, Maine was the 50th state that allowed pharmacists to immunize. And if we fast forward from 1996 to 2020, when we were hit with a pandemic and then we all of a sudden had a vaccine, pharmacists, because of that advocacy work and because of the policy of our association, were prepared 
to administer over 300 million COVID vaccines. So when we think about expanding roles of pharmacists into the public health domain, we have a wonderful and rich history mm -hmm. of pharmacists doing just that. So to get to the question about sort of what I do in my day job and how all of those puzzle pieces fit together, I actually work in population health. And so I work on the pharmaceutical needs, the patient care needs that our, our members have and our populations have in our communities. And so we think about how do we bring pharmacy services to a place where people that we serve um, are ready to receive those services and deliver them in a way that's meaningful to them, that's on their terms, and it allows us to achieve these goals um, that our populations really deserve. And those are goals like things um, like A1C control, blood pressure control, um, having a better experience navigating the healthcare system, which by the way, we have so much opportunity in just yep. developing a better experience. So we work in all of those areas, and pharmacists are front and center to contribute to that. So my practice, I work for Banner Health, which is a local health system here. We have a primary care shortage in the state of Arizona, mm -hmm. and so we partner with our physicians, who are the diagnosticians who set goals with their patients, and they say, I'm going to have you work with my pharmacist between now and the next time I see you, and that pharmacist is going to make small changes to your blood pressure medicine or your diabetes medicine, so that when the next time I see you, we're going to get that A1C down. We're going to get that blood pressure down. And so we've got pharmacists that work in all care settings, the acute care setting, primary care, specialty care, uh, to help our patients get to their uh, clinical goals and to make that experience of getting to your clinical goals a much more positive experience. You know, I think of the different sectors of healthcare that really got the, the uh, spotlight put on them during the pandemic, and one of that was senior care. Another was areas within our country that doesn't have enough healthcare services, the, the deserts of healthcare, the pharmacy deserts, the healthcare deserts. From a policy perspective, what have you learned and what can you share with our listeners that is necessary in order to roll out more care, more healthcare services that you know could be pulled from pharmacy resources? Sure. So, and actually, this is an area of a policy. We have a new business item that's coming to our House of Delegates on Monday to hear just that. So, um, we pharmacy deserts are a real thing. And I think that that gives us an opportunity to say, look, when we have to shut down pharmacies because they can no longer afford to stay in business, which is a real occurrence, it's a real phenomenon that's happening across our country, um, the opportunity then becomes to say, look, we need to measure the consequences of losing this healthcare resource in these communities, and then we need to work with the stakeholders who are ultimately at risk. So our state governments and our Medicaid programs, our federal governments and our Medicare programs, uh, they are responsible for making sure that the members in all of these communities have access to these essential healthcare, healthcare services. And if we can't afford to keep pharmacies in these uh, local, or, you know, rural, small communities, then um, then there's going to have to be they're going to have to be replaced by something, and so that's where the opportunity lives is to say, let's figure out a business model that will root this pharmacy in the in the community and coalesce lots of different provider types, um, different healthcare professionals around the needs of the patients um, and the members of those communities that we serve. So someone's listening that didn't get to come to APHA 2023, and they're inspired by what you're saying about healthcare policy specifically. They may be part of a health system in my own uh, Allegheny Health um, Network, uh, sure. UPMC, 
what's your shout out to a pharmacist that's listening right now that really wants to get more into this? What's their first steps to really build out them as an expert in policy development? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I think every job in any health system, every job in any community pharmacy matters. We all are here because patients need We're our all, care. I always say every pharmacist is a clinician. That's right. Every <laughs> pharmacist is a clinician, whether you are on the front lines in a community pharmacy, in a hospital, if you're working in a managed care pharmacy space and you're making prior auth determinations and things of that nature, you take on some measure of clinical responsibility in every decision that you make. That's why we all have jobs. So for the pharmacist that's listening, who wants to learn more and wants to understand how they can connect, I'd say first and foremost, start by becoming a member of your state pharmacy associations, get educated on the work that they're doing locally in your state um, to advance these causes. Second, I think educate yourself through things like, um, well, podcasts. like <laughs> Locked <laughs> um, on pharmacy. That's right, Le reading your uh, pharmacy journals. Um, uh, talking to uh, health plan partners that are local. There's lots of local and regional health plans that um, what you'll be surprised to find, share your goals as a clinician. They want to take care of their populations just like you want to take care of your patients. And then figure out those creative ways to problem solve. Um, what I've learned is I've uh, started my career in the delivery side in the hospital setting and then moved into the AmCare setting, and now I work in population health and managed care, is that our managed care colleagues, I think in many instances, really do want to take the best care of their members, our patients, um, which aligns with our values and ideals. And so starting up those conversations, I'll tell you, sometimes they're awkward to yep. get started. Lean into that awkwardness. Um, talk about your vision. Talk about your goals and ideals. Find those areas of common ground and just get creative. Realize that you are the voice of your patient. Mm -hmm. And think of that. Don't think that you don't have the right to say something because of what has been traditionally put out there. It's time to change things. It's time to advance healthcare in general. And the pharmacist's role is expanding. So it's kind of kind of take time time to take our flag and press it into the into the ground of, of where pharmacists belong. You bet. And I, I think too um, asking a lot of probing questions to stakeholders and some of you know your health plan partners, your employers um, who are employing a lot of folks and paying for their health care needs. Um, ask questions about what are those pain points? What do you struggle with to afford in taking care of your employees? Yep. Um, and then get creative from there and say, you know what, I think we can problem solve this. Medication adherence is a great example. Um, any Medicare plan and many of our commercial um, health plans and self-insured employers, they are looking to find solutions to keep people adherent on their meds because we all know that adherence mitigates uh, progression of disease. Yep. So um, think about things that can help solve problems for your customers and sell it to them. Put it in a product, package it up, and sell it. <laughs> Dr. Melissa Duke, it's been a pleasure to have you as part of our post show for the Lockdown Pharmacy podcast, and we, we'd like to have you back. Wonderful. I'd like to be back. Thank you. Thank you. to Locked On Pharmacy Podcast, where we're talking about health, public health, and health policy topics from the perspective of our wonderful pharmacists across the U.S. My name is Dr. Candice Olushla. I'm hosting today's episode, and we are here with none other than Dr. Bled Tanaway. She is the winner of our most influential pharmacist in the country. She's in the top 50, and she is just a powerhouse here, and we're just so excited 
to be talking with her today. So, Dr. Tanaway, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. All right. So we are here at APHA Live and just wanting to hear um, your perspective on things that you've seen here and just a lot of what your passion points are for the profession. Yeah, just first, let me say thank you to Jog Topics, who is my sponsor and uh, who allowed me to be here. And so I'm so really grateful. Thank you for APHA for creating this space. So this year, it was been, it's been really amazing in the sense of meeting again so many wonderful people, new and those who uh, I have met last year. And so I got lots of hugs and like so high and that was so sweet. Um, and just again, you know, as you guys know, I'm very passionate about uh, workplace conditions and this year we had about three or four sessions on the, on the topic and I'm still processing the information about what has been said, how the sections have been, how the forums have been in place. There's so much to take back and to reflect on but a really point I want to drive forward is the fact that we cannot be afraid to be talking about this issue. We cannot be walking on eggshells and trying because we are afraid to hurt people feel Feelings. The issues are here, they are real, there are real people going through those, um, through those conditions. Our pharmacists, our technicians, our students, our patients are really working on what I can call nothing but just a fire and an issue to the public's uh, safety. And so it's really important to, to just really be passionate, to really be bold, and to really be working to our actions when we talk about workplace conditions. So, yeah. <laughs> It has it has definitely been an interesting experience being in these in these rooms. And this is your first time to be at the conference as well, so you know you also have your own perspective on the issue, which of course you know, I would love to hear. Oh. What do you think? Oh, the tables have been turned. Yes, the today I will be the host of the podcast. You tell me how you feel about the conf- the conference and what you have witnessed. This has never happened to me before. This is amazing. Okay, so. First off, this is my first time at APHA, and it is a whirlwind. There are students everywhere. There are pharmacists everywhere. Technicians are here. Educators are here. So it's just nice to see a wide variety of different people representing the profession. I have been in some of these rooms talking about the workplace conditions, and I do have to agree on some of the conversations that have been had have really had to make me step back and think about what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. The encouragement I have are hearing from students, hearing from pharmacists, hearing from technicians coming up to me and talking about their grievances, their desire to see this profession thrive the yeah. way that we all have loved. We mm-hmm. we didn't go through technician certifications and pharmacy degrees and even those that are, have gone through residencies. We didn't put in the work to then have our hands tied mm-hmm. to do that work. We mm-hmm. actually love this profession mm-hmm. and we are the most accessible healthcare providers out there in the world. So I, I'm encouraged by people wanting to keep and improve the integrity of 
this profession, and I'm I'm really actually very excited to see what happens in our country in the next few years. Yeah, yeah. I I'm living with so much hope. I'm living with um, a lot of power for what is next for me, and I'm living with a, my thing for next year, which is break free, because you know it, that's what I want for. I want us to break free from the prison and break free from the bondage that we that we seen around our profession. The hash hash, the retaliation, the intimidation, you know, it's time for us to really realize the power that is within our voice, our hand, and when we come together as a profession, how, what can we do to make it better? So, yeah. I love it. Let's collaborate, guys. Let's work together to break free yes. from the things that do bind those of us behind the counter and in other pockets of this profession so we can give care to our patients the way that we were trained to. Dr. Blood Tanaway, thank you so much for being on the show Absolutely. today. Absolutely. Thank you. Podcasting, for me, it's like I don't have to tell the stories anymore. I let pharmacists tell the stories. And, and what, I, what I want is I want more people to listen to what pharmacists do, understand that they're not just behind a counter with a white coat counting tablets or pills. So when I get to hang out with other podcasters that know what it takes to actually build a good conversation that holds the attention of your audience, I get excited. So I'm standing here with Dr. Uh, Olushala, and you've been in our network now for a while with Pizzas Not Working. Candice, welcome to the uh, APHA 2023. Thank you. This is my first time here, and it has been wild. It's it's it is quite an experience to see so many different parts of our profession in one room from the student level, yep. academia, you got our corporate chains, you've I mean, you've got our mom and pop stores here and organizations, especially pharmacies, specialty here. pharmacies here. Yep. I mean, it is really it's nice to see all of us in one room together. Yes. I always describe this show as the Super Bowl or as the Oscars of our profession, or a combination of those two. And it really is. It's, it's, this isn't an intense business show like I pick up from, like I go to Assembio, which is a, more of a specialty pharmacy business show. Um, I go to NNCPA, which is more centralized in, in community pharmacy. But like you said, Candace, this is a collection of all facets and all sectors of pharmacy coming together, and that's really special. Yeah, it is really special. The conversations that we get to have in a room like this are, are so rare because during the work days, everyone is so busy. They're just trying to get the job done. So the opportunities that people have to come here and actually connect, network, find out what is actually happening, not just in my side of pharmacy, but in yours as well. And how can I support you? How can we support each other? How can we get these conversations out there? What can we do to support? So it, it's it's really nice to be able to have spaces like this to do this. Well, we're excited that you're co-hosting. Um, it's fun for me to be able to hear different voices and different personalities. And you interview differently than I do. Um, other, phar other pharmacy podcast members interview differently. That's my favorite part about it. I get so bored listening to the same thing over and over again. So I'm thrilled to um, be sharing your interviews here. We're also very proud that you're part of the network through Pizza Is Not Working. That's kind of like something I wanted to, to 
just take a pause and, and talk to our listeners about. I don't know if people know that hashtag pizza's not working has been out now for a, more than two years now. Almost, almost if not. Maybe three. Uh, almost, almost two almost years. Two years. Since about fall of 2021. Okay, and it really started out from from Dr. Bled Tanoe's personal perspective, but then it ballooned and exploded into this national initiative, which is pharmacists who are saying, listen, we're not trying to put the emphasis on some bad guy out there. We're trying to say for the love of the goodness of all things, patient care and pharmacy and advocacy of what it means to be a pharmacist, stop, stop doing the status quo. Stop trying to fix things by doing it the way that you try to do things 5, 10, 20 years ago because pharmacy has changed, number one. Number two, our workforce has changed. I, I have to take a step back as someone in my age range, um, Generation Xer, and the way that I was treated by my parents and my teachers and, you know, you worked hard and you kept your head down and there was no such thing as mental health. We didn't talk about mental health back then. If I was depressed as an eight-year-old, I was sent upstairs to my bed and, you know, maybe I went to sleep early or cry it off or be... Nobody really, like, drilled down into how mental health was impacting anybody and everybody. Now we understand that mental health is health care. And I think burnout and someone that just went out through six years, eight years of schooling and training, and now they want to become a pharmacist, and they enter the chain environment, and it's in, an or, it's in a realm, and it's in an environment where it's a, it's a grind, 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 and it's not, they don't feel clinical. They don't feel like they're getting to spend time with their patients, and they just, they go home, they're exhausted. They just want to eat something quickly and go to bed because they got to get up and do it all over again. Candace, that's not what pharmacy was supposed to be. No, no, it was never intended to be that way. When you think back on pharmacy, even 20 years ago or more, as a kid, I remember growing up in the 90s, going into a pharmacy, my pharmacist not only knew me by name, but he knew my family, he knew what activities I was a part of, he knew what area of town I lived in off of the top of his head, and his technicians were the same way. So you felt like you were walking into not really just your doctor's office who has a chart about you, but this person knows you, mm -hmm. right? It's someone that you felt like, if I called my pharmacist and said, hey, can we go out for dinner? We probably could have, yep. you know? It, it was that familial. And... I really think that that has been the beauty of pharmacy is that because we're so accessible and we're literally in the center of communities and surrounding communities, we get to be involved with the community, historically speaking. It's mm -hmm. what we've done, and we, we are part of the community, at, not just as providers, but as people living in these communities. So we, we had this this conversation going on all the time about how we just love seeing our patients because it was like seeing your cousins or your aunties or your grandparents walk into your store. And now the model, fast forward, it does feel like product delivery, just throughout the product, throughout the product, throughout the product. Yep. There's a barrier between those behind the counter and those in front of the counter. And the patients feel it. The workers feel it. There even feels like isolation between people that are in the same workspace. Mm -hmm. It's like there's so much isolation. And then that brings up the mental health conversation, right? Yep. And so 
this fragmented model of we're supposed to be caring for our patients, but I don't, I don't know this person when they walk in and they're like, but I was just here last month and I was just here the month before. And they're frustrated because they're used to seeing the same pharmacist or the same technicians. Yeah. And the turnover rate is so high that they're like, I don't even feel like I walk into a store that knows me anymore. Yeah. And they're so busy, the busyness, the overflowing of prescriptions, the phones are ringing off the hook. They don't have time to look up or down or sideways to, to do the work that's put on them and still connect in the way that we're all clinically trained to. So with the pizza's not working movement, we, we see that, we feel that, we, we grieve that mm-hmm. with the patients, we grieve that with the communities, and we want to bring that model back. It's not about attacking groups and entities to shut them down. Like, right. it's not that. It's a, can we remember the heart of what we do, the joy in what we did. Can we bring back that model as the heartbeat of the pharmacy model, even when things get innovative? You Mm -hmm. can be just as innovative and keep the heart. Correct. But the heart feels like it's been stomped on and crushed on and then told to keep beating. It's like, I can't beat if your foot's on my heart. So, (laughs) you know, that's frustrating. And to to be able to advocate, uh, I've chosen and really feel called to not really be in the system to have these conversations. I don't work in a retail or hospital setting anymore because I think the the voices that haven't been able to speak up that are inside need someone who's not in the system speaking up for them mm-hmm. that has the degree, that has the knowledge base, the clinical background of saying, I know the work that we put in to be back here. Mm-hmm. I know the heart that we had to push through those hard days in school when we were crying, trying to figure out this material. I know the blood, sweat, and tears that we put in for our patients and for this profession. And I, I, I don't feel like my voice is really heard anymore and and I'm tired. It's mm-hmm. like, well, I I'm willing to be out here and making sure that we can let you reclaim your voice, make sure your mental health is okay, make sure your staff is okay, make sure your patients are okay, make sure the public is okay because at the end of the day, everyone it's it's not just a pay, it's not it's not a pharmacist or technician to patient model. It's not a one-way street. It's an ecosystem. Yep right? It's an ecosystem where everyone needs to be involved and we need to be honest about what's going on in order for that ecosystem to be equitable for everyone involved, including the workers, not just the patients, because our safety is the patient's safety. Yep. If a pharmacist is listening right now and they want to reach out to you and they want to feel that things are in confidence and that it's going to be private between them and you, what's the best way to reach out to you? You can reach out to me. You can email me at pizza is not working ky at gmail.com because I am part of the Kentucky branch of pizza is not working. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, any social media site, just Candace Olushala. And I would love to have conversations with you. And we are very much about protecting your identity. If you yep. choose to be anonymous and I'm the only person who knows that you spoke with me, I vow to keep that, and yep. I have not broken that. We have we have been very strict about that because we understand that retaliation is still real, it is. and we want we want to be um, we want to protect our colleagues 
Well, our network um, is going to continue to support you, but we want other people that are listening to get involved because it can't be just Candace and Bled. We have to grow this, grow this, grow this. And I know that it's not just you two of you because it has really blown up. Mm -hmm. We just talked to um, several of your other state representatives that are kind of like coming and, and helping to, to do interesting content development and social media support. But if you're listening and you want to be part of this, please reach out to Candace. Please reach out to the team. Um, you can find her or email her at pizzaisnotworkingky at gmail.com. But Candace, thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Hey, I'm Todd Yuri with the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm Dr. Candace Olushala. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to Locked, Locked on, on Pharmacy. Hello, we're here on Locked on Pharmacy, where we're talking about health, public health, and health policy topics pertaining to pharmacy from the perspective of our pharmacists all across the U.S. My name is Dr. Candice Olushala, and I am here with a return guest, Dr. Frank North, Bowtie Frank as I call him, and we are here at APHA's annual meeting in Phoenix. We're just going to get a little update on things that are going on in his world. So, Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So yes, excited. Absolutely. So, Let's talk about what it is that you're passionate about during this time in the field of pharmacy. Great. So that's a great question. So my name is Frank North, and I'm president of the National Pharmaceutical Association, which uh, many people may not know and some do know, but it's historically an African-American or black uh, pharmacy association when members or pharmacists that were African-American were not arguably allowed to participate in uh, the American Pharmaceutical Association or APHA today. Um, and so that's the history. That's the past, but it's also the history. And so it's important to know that history. And so a lot of the things that I am interested in have been consistent with um, over my career, and that is access and representation of, uh, of all things in all places in healthcare. And so when it comes to um, student access to developing a pipeline or persistence in pharmacy school or having access and opportunities and postgraduate opportunities or simply professional development because we are maybe an older pharmacist that uh, didn't match or didn't have didn't see the interest or the value in pursuing a residency at that time and now maybe considering themselves too old to go back into a postgraduate opportunity in that uh, in that way they can um, secure themselves and and, and, and kind of reinvent themselves with professional development so um, my concerns are centered around uh, making sure that there is equitable access if, they, if, if to, to, to all things and within that um, with, within the profession um, so yeah so when you say equitable equitable access you mean for the workers as well as patients Everyone. So I, I believe in, you know, the vision of um, Vision 360. So when you think about and so shout out to my current institution and that's our, you know, um, strategic plan is looking at the, the whole uh, environment. And so when we think about students, when we think about faculty members, when we think about administrators, when we think about patients, when we think about, you know, patients, families, how can we be as inclusive and as representative? to make everyone have equitable access to that particular, um, to, to, the, to the particular services that they seek out. I'm not going to lie. This is a very interesting perspective on the field of pharmacy. And I, I say that because we are often taught and, and 
we're taught to say that the focus is the patient, but what you're saying is that there's a there's an ecosystem. There's an ecosystem. And the, the integrity of the ecosystem is actually what drives quality patient care, and we have to really address the barriers and issues within the ecosystem. That's correct. To to allow that to happen. That's that's correct because you know I, I, literature says and literature shows that a person is going to you know seek care and have arguably better outcomes in their care if the individual looks like them. But it also says that if they come from similar backgrounds or have an authentic understanding of the backgrounds that they serve. So I think for me, it's not about just, you know, increasing the pipeline of diverse pharmacists. That, that is one in the main goal, and particularly African-Americans, but it's also developing an ecosystem or a place where a non-minoritized pharmacist that has an interest in serving in that patient population is comfortable and has a fair understanding or has a authentic understanding of the patient population that they're serving because ultimately it's the connections that they're going to be able to make with that patient population that's super important as opposed to, you know, maybe making that patient feel like they're not a part of the system because they now have to toss them off to a, 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 a provider um, that is congruent to their um, their presentation in the facility, but if everyone has an idea and has an opportunity to learn about the various factors that are going to affect that patient's care, then we're able to build better relationships with those individuals. If you had even three immediate, I could do it right now, either as a student, an educator, a pharmacist, what are some like three immediate action steps that someone can take to think more or be proactive on equitable, an equitable ecosystem of pharmacy and healthcare as pertains to patients? Yeah, so um, I have a, a hard problem with like just identifying three uh, or succinctly three, but I think it's important, you know, to always live with and function with a sense of cultural humility. So we talk about cultural competency, which is just, you know, understanding the dynamic that the individual might be going through. But understanding the cultural humility is that I am continuously a learner of someone from a different background. I am always a continuous learner about the things that might be able to help or hurt the interaction and the outcome that I'm trying to that I'm trying to pursue. So I think that and that and there there are steps that uh, different frameworks allow for us to go through the process of cultural humility is that you know befriending someone that is of a different culture or a different race or a different gender or a different sexual identity or a different uh, gender identity uh, and then immersing yourself into um, life from their perspective. Um, allows for you to gain a different understanding and a different respect for maybe the health outcomes that they are looking for. You know, I know many people may hear like the the, the, the term, you know, oh, I meet a person where they are, you know, and, and, and in my life, I've tried to complete that sentence where I meet a person where they are and I try to help them get to where they want to go. And I think so often we try to get people where we think they should be or where we want them to be, as opposed to helping them get to where they want to go and then helping them see more uh, of themselves uh, from that particular space and then wanting to go more. And then that more might be in the direction that you wanted them to go in, or it might be in a completely different uh, um, direction, but then you can still have impact on them getting to that point as well. Frank, 
You're the man. Thank you so much. No problem. And I know that I wanted to just share some brief updates with the National Pharmaceutical Association. Yes, so go ahead. We're having our annual convention. Our annual convention is in New Orleans, Louisiana. Okay. It's going to be July 28th through the 31st. And so we're hoping to see um, many, many members, many, many future members, uh, potential members at our convention. Um, you can visit our website, www.npha.net. That's www.npha.net. And then you can see all of the different activities that we have uh, going on throughout the, um, be before the convention and throughout the year, as well as membership, uh, volunteer opportunities, different things that just fundraising opportunities. So just ways that you can get involved. I think it's important, you know, for pharmacists to be engaged at four levels, and that's their alumni association level, their state association level, a national level like APHA, ASHP, I am a member of both, uh, and then an organization that is um, in a line with who you identify with, whether that's based off race, whether that's based off of gender, whether it's based off of religion. There are various minoritized organizations that serve in those capacities. And so for me, that is the National Pharmaceutical Association, and I'm able to extend quality uh, access to representation to not just black or African-American students and practitioners, but all underrepresented minoritized individuals. And that's what we want to do at the National Pharmaceutical Association. Thank you, Frank. You guys, you heard it here. Make sure you visit www.npha.net and find out ways that you can get involved with what they're doing there. Thank you again for being on the show, and thank you guys for listening today. Thank you. One of the challenges that every pharmacist is facing across the nation is pockets of communities that they know they just don't have enough healthcare services to, um, to cover the need of that population. And how um, we're told by statistics that everyone is within five to you know, maximum 10 miles away from a community pharmacy. And how important that is because sometimes that's the only healthcare services that someone has. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Joy Alonzo uh, to the APHA 2023 Lockdown Pharmacy coverage here. Joy, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So, social determinants of health, your subject at the, um, at the event is all about describing that to our pharmacists to understand how they can take action. So give us kind of an overview of what you're doing and some of the work that you've done with other uh, state and national organizations. So at Texas A&M, we have a number of innovative programs that uh, are, some of them are funded, some of them are not. Uh, one of the larger ones is a CDC grant where we're actually trying to provide education awareness for vaccines. COVID vaccine, certainly, but also other vaccines. Since the COVID pandemic, we've actually had a decrease in the number of pediatric vaccinations nationwide, so that those numbers are dropping, and in Texas especially. 75% of Texas is rural. Just as you said, access to care is extremely challenging for these folks. There's entire counties that have no hospital at all. Some counties have no registered physician at all, but they all have access to pharmacy. So yep. through this CDC grant, we've actually partnered with rural pharmacies, a number of corporate rural pharmacies and independent pharmacies to help us 
do the education, not just actually the vaccination itself, but to educate on the importance of vaccination and take it right to the rural communities. Yeah, Joy, when I think of the life cycle of medication management, medication safety, um, ancillary services that may be more integrative health ideas that are coming from pharmacists, some of the most creative, innovative pharmacists, one of the aspects that I think about is the clinical trial, the starting point of developing a, a new therapy and how pockets of our country and pockets of demographics are left out of certain clinical trials. And you are working on that piece of um, social determinants of health as well. Absolutely. The actual estimates of underserved minorities in clinical trials are 2 to 10 percent, depending on the disease state that the target drug it addresses. That's actually pretty abysmal. How it impacts the clinical trial is quite negatively. The results can't be generalizable to the population. And additionally, in post-marketing surveillance, we find that there's pockets of minorities that actually the outcomes and the efficacy of that drug are highly impacted, causing EUAs and compassionate use authorizations to be clawed back because it's not generalizable to what would look like the, the entire U.S. population. So how do you engage uh, Hispanic populations, uh, black American populations, in, especially in rural areas when we have such a, a mistrust uh, yeah. of the medical community? Well, one of the ideas at Texas A&M, which is actually sponsored by the FDA, the FDA has a huge interest in, in trying to address this, this problem, as does the NIH. And what we're doing is we had the thought, well, like you said, everybody lives within five to 10 miles of a community pharmacy mm -hmm. of some kind. There may not be a hospital in your county, there may not be a physician, there may not even be nurse practitioners, but there's a pharmacist somewhere. Yeah. So we had the idea of decentralizing clinical trials and providing a revenue stream for the community pharmacist to actually engage in the clinical trial. Wouldn't just be recruiting, we're talking about they help conduct the trial mm -hmm. and they get a revenue stream just like the rest of us do that would conduct that trial. And, you know, I, I have the idea, I've been actually talking to pharmacists all through the meeting here, um, independent pharmacists, corporate pharmacists, to find out, like, what are the barriers to make this work? And I, I had the idea that maybe maybe all clinical trials should be decentralized. And we, we actually, I built a, with the engineers at, at Texas A&M, we built a geospatial analysis of all historical clinical trials to include demographics, social vulnerability indexes, uh, COVID vulnerability indexes, where we can actually use AI to tell us where the clinical trials were held, what what happened, what were their goals of enrollment for URMs, and what actually happened, and what kind of messaging did they use to help us target those areas where a decentralized trial might actually work and we could ring the area. And those folks that work in that area, they really know their community. Who knows their community better than the community pharmacist? Right. They know the faith-based folks, they, they know where those community resources are, they know how to take it to the people, and that's what we want. We want the pharmacist to draw the blood, we want the pharmacist to be actively involved in taking human samples, and we will find a way for them to help process that and get that back to a centralized location and be part of the whole drug development 
process. And we think that that's going to be a really important innovation in the future. I think it is the part of innovation of pharmacists in the future for decentralized clinical trials. We've talked about this on our on our podcast network several times. We had guests from uh, Walgreens come on and talk about their clinical trial. We had independent community pharmacies come on and talk about their uh, involvement in clinical trials. So I couldn't agree with you more, Joy, that there are pharmacists out there who are leaning more towards epidemiology, that if they get involved in some of the clinical trials that are impacting the future development of other vaccines, that, that screams to me a huge opportunity for pharmacists that are out there that really want to be the data analytical, behind the scenes, adjusters of data from the algorithms that, out, that the AI is putting in the, out for us to react to the coupling of all of this data. Um, that's exciting to hear. We always want to have people come back on clinical trials specifically. So I just want to let you know, uh, Locked On Pharmacy here, APHA, we have to have you come back and, and really unpack and bring guests with you that really want to talk about how do we find a clinical trial opportunity in our community, how do we find the funding, and who should we plugged into in order to follow up on it so that we can rinse and repeat and, and continue to let our our communities know that, hey, this is a safe space. You trust us as your pharmacist, and now you can trust us in a clinical trial environment as well. And I'll do you one better. We actually want the pharmacist to be engaged in the design of the trials. Mm. So we actually want them from the beginning um, to help us design the protocols, how this, how, how we're going to collect the samples, how the, how patients are going to be engaged, you know, what the remuneration for patients is, what their remuneration is. We want them to be a part of the trial, the, the trial design. Um, we're partnered with the uh, AACP on this, so we actually, uh, this is a great, including the FDA, the AACP. We are trying to actually engage pharmacy schools all across the nation, especially those that are HACUs, Hispanic-serving institutions, and historically black uh, colleges. Texas A&M is both. We both have a, we're, we're a Hispanic-serving institution, and with Prairie View uh, A&M as part of our system, we are also incorporate a historically black university. So we want other like-minded universities to help us change the way schools of pharmacies might view this, engage their local pharmacists, and have them help us design the trials from the get-go so they're not struggling with some of those issues. This is a trial I design. I'm part of it. Yep. Uh, and and, and in, in addition to finding those trials that uh, may already be in existence and are looking for sites, uh, it's a new thought, right? It's a new way of conducting business for the NIH, for the FDA, for other uh, the pharmaceutical manufacturers. But I think it's an important one. We can't keep things the same, or they can expect more poor results in post-marketing data and surveillance that, you know, minorities are not going to have the same efficacy and they're not going to have the same adherence and they're not going to have the same results that other populations do. So, you know, I, we would love to come back, Texas and we would love to come back and talk more about this, this issue. Uh, it's certainly a huge focus of ours uh, for the, to incorporate underserved minorities into everything we do uh, to improve outcomes. Right now, you know, in the United States, uh, well, in Texas specifically, there are pockets of Texas where you are still, to this day, twice as likely to die from a bout of COVID than other populations if you are a minority population. We still have, you know, a historically relatively low vaccination rate. 
for COVID and other disease states as well. That that has shifted over into vac, you know preventable disease states for other vaccinations for preventable disease states in other areas. So we're really looking at how to re-educate, re-engage. You know, an interesting feature is that um, where clinical trials were like specifically placed in URM population dense areas compared to other trials, the URM enrollment was actually lower. So that, but so the outcome there is that we don't have the right messaging, we don't have the right engagement, you know, we don't have those folks like the community pharmacist who's a trusted member of the community that people come to every day to ask questions, super accessible resource. We don't, we're, we're just not actually achieving what we hope to achieve. Yep. And so to, to develop, to rebuild trust, to develop these relationships, nobody knows that better than your local community pharmacist. We agree. Dr. Joy Alonzo, thank you so much for being part of the APHA 2023's coverage of Locked On Pharmacy. We will have you back. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. This is the Locked on Pharmacy podcast. I am hosting today. I am Dr. Candice Olushala from the Pizza is Not Working podcast. And I'm here with Dr. Aaron Pauling. And we're going to talk a little bit about the importance of understanding social determinants of health as pharmacists and even just healthcare practitioners overall, because there are other factors going on outside of just the medical health needs of a patient. And so, Dr. Aaron, I would love for you to introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us where you're from, who you work for, what you do on a regular basis, and what you're doing here at the American Pharmacists Association annual meeting. Yes, thank you so much. Like it was mentioned, my name is Dr. Aaron Pauling. I work at the Binghamton University School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences in upstate New York. Um, so I'm a clinical assistant professor with an ambulatory care practice, really focusing on anticoagulation as well as diabetes management for our patients. Um, and I'm also our assistant dean for academic, academic affairs there at the School of Pharmacy. Wonderful. That is amazing. Congratulations. That's a beautiful profession that you have um, for the students, especially speaking on something like social determinants of health, for that to be something that you're passionate about. We don't hear a lot about this term. So can you unpack what social determinants of health means and why it's crucial for healthcare practitioners like pharmacists to understand the ins and outs of what social determinants of health are? Of course. Um, I'm very fortunate to get to teach the SDOH, the social determinants of health, to our students very early on in our curriculum. Um, as a school, we're located in a very rural community, um, so our students are living and working and educa being educated in an environment where the SDOH, they're seeing those played out in the patients where they'll be experiencing their experiential education. And really, that's what the SDOH are. Um, the social determinants of health refer to those factors where a patient lives, where they are born, how they grow up, where they are educated, where they work. All of those factors that go into how their life is going to turn out through um, their medical care being a very small portion of that. 
As pharmacists, I think we uh, refer to patient health outcomes so much, but when you really dive into the literature, the social determinants of health really comprise a lot of patient health care outcomes. Depending upon where you look, um, you'll see that medical care or pharmaceuticals really only account for maybe 10 to 20 percent of healthcare outcomes, which means the majority, up to 80 percent of healthcare outcomes, are due to all of those other factors: where a patient lives, if they have access to electricity, refrigeration, how they get about, are they able to transport in oh their own gosh. motor vehicle, taking public transit. Um, the employment that they might have or perhaps do not have, even their education, all the way down to the level of early childhood education up to the point of if they've graduated from a university or a college. So really looking at all of those factors that are going to make up the identity of an individual and the significant impact that that can have on their health outcomes. Mm. This is actually a really important topic for me as well. I studied this in my MPH program, and it's a it's a passion topic for me. So, when it comes to being a practitioner, and you know, of course, we go through pharmacy school, we read the literature, and we really actually look into the into literature mainly for drug and drug outcomes. That's what we're trained really to do, and that's not our fault. That That's a lot of what we need to know. But how do you see us funneling that information into our practice sites when we are talking with patients and making sure that they get everything out of everything that they need outside of just understanding how to take the medications that they're taking? Yeah, I mean, evidence-based medicine is certainly important. We need to be recommending the correct therapies for patients, but it's not going to be correct if the patient can't take it for whatever that reason might be. So in my diabetes management, we focus a lot on health literacy and health numeracy, the ability of our patients to understand a very complex disease state and how to do diabetes math. Diabetes math is pretty difficult. I'm thinking about, okay, I have this blood sugar number and I'm supposed to take this much insulin if my blood sugar is at this level and then I need to count out all the carbohydrates I'm eating, which means I have to read a nutrition facts label and then I have to add those together and dial up a dose of insulin and it can become very overwhelming for individuals you know, that are in pharmacy school even themselves or have that PharmD degree. And to think through individuals that perhaps haven't completed high school or haven't even done math of that nature in many, many years. Um, so we utilize a number of tools to screen our patients. And it may start as simply as, what do you understand about your diabetes? What do you understand to be the most difficult part of taking care of this disease state for yourself? Or we can utilize different screening tools for health literacy, for health numeracy, for food insecurity. If an individual is having difficulty obtaining meals, maybe doesn't know where the next meal is going to be placed on their table. Or screening tools just to look at general social determinants of health overall. And from there, we can pinpoint what might be a particular social factor that we should be focusing on for a patient, in addition to those medical or pharmacological factors. Hmm. Do you know what resources that pharmacists can look up to find these screening tools for their patients? Yeah, so the American Pharmacists Association has been a great partner 
Over the past few years, I've been working with them and a variety of other offices to make these tools um, available in a repository. Um, so it's very easy at this point if you visit pharmacist.com slash SDOH, you'll be able to find a number of screening tools for these various factors, as well as links to resources for patients should you determine that food is, is the concern for them or that health literacy is the concern for them. Wonderful. So we will make sure to put that link in the show notes down below so that way you can have an easy access to that URL and kind of get used to what resources are on that page. Now, I guess one of my other questions is when we look at what's going on just in the pharmacy structure, right? Someone might be listening to this and saying, this sounds great, but I don't necessarily have the time to be able to talk to my patients about some of the stuff I wish I did. Can you think of things that pharmacists can do maybe on the front end before patients come in to try to structure the the the, the culture of the pharmacy to kind of just make it almost natural conversation when someone's picking up their medication? Do you have any tricks or tips for people who would want to do that despite the craziness behind the counter? I think sometimes it's just a simple question. Um, you know, in a community pharmacy setting, when you see perhaps that a patient's not refilling medications on a routine basis, just asking the question, what makes it difficult for you to take this medication on a daily basis or to fill this prescription every month? And that often opens up a conversation Another thing that is a little bit more informal, if you will, is we often have in our, in our pharmacy settings medication cards for a patient to pick up and fill out, or information about the pharmacy or the services that we provide. So looking within the community where you are providing those services, what food pantries are available? Where are there resources to education classes? or the library where an individual might be able to access a computer if they don't have one at home. And just having that type of literature sitting on your countertops for patients to easily be able to pick up as well. Unfortunately, there's a lot of stigma and perhaps shame related to not being able to understand information or not having enough food to eat. So sometimes just having those informations available for a patient to pick up and not have to fully engage with another individual can be the first step to starting a conversation, even though you may not be saying any words. Mm. I appreciate this conversation a lot because having been triggered in my education as a pharmacy student when I was, you know, back in the day in school, seeing that there was that barrier between what I was being taught in school to then go into rotations to talk to patients about. And you come across patients that look at you with deer in the headlights kind of saying, I hear everything you're saying. I just don't know how I can even get to my appointments. I don't know how to get to the pharmacy. Some people are carpooling to get mm -hmm. to the pharmacy. They find out someone in the community is driving there. So they just schedule around that one person. They pile up in a car. And if that person decides they're not going anymore, no one's going anymore. You know, and so when we don't understand these things behind the counter, we often have stigmas about what might actually be happening when the, in reality there's something totally different going on. And so I just appreciate the fact that you're passionate about this conversation enough to even teach the students about because 
the more that we make them aware of these topics, the more that they'll actually make it a natural part of their questioning in the education side. So when they come out and practice, it'll just be an easy go-to for them to want to have to ask simple questions. It can even be a pocket of three questions that they know they always ask a new patient just to make sure they get a baseline of those things. So I just thank you so much, Erin, for coming on the show and talking about these things. And I hope that you get to share more of that information here at APHA with more pharmacists and pharmacy students while you're here this weekend. Great. Thank you so much, Candace. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for APHA's 2023 Annual Meeting Edition of Locked on Pharmacy. APHA thanks all of our members, attendees, guests, and presenters for making the 2023 annual meeting a spectacular success. Make sure to visit us at podcasts.pharmacist.com, where you can find more information about today's topics and guests. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to ensure you never miss an episode. Questions about this show, tips for the podcast team, or how you can contribute to a future episode? Shoot us an email at lockedonpharmacy@aphanet.org. This has been a special edition of Locked On Pharmacy, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Views expressed by guests represent the individual guests and not APHA, unless otherwise stated.